Hello and welcome back to the Agents of Change and Environmental Justice podcast brought to you by the George Washington Milken Institute School of Public Health and Environmental Health News at ehn.org. I'm your host here with you every other week, Brian Binkowski, Senior Editor at Environmental Health News and the Editor of Agents of Change. Well, we have some big news this week. We have a brand new logo and website. That's right. Visit agentsofchangeinej.org to see our new online home. There you'll find easy access to all of the essays and podcasts. You can check out our fellows' work featured across the broader media landscape. You can see the current and past fellows. We also have a fancy search function if you want to tailor your content. We are very excited about this, friends, so check it out, bookmark it, and keep tabs on what our team and our hardworking fellows have going on. And if you want to be a fellow in the program, this is where you will find application instructions in a few months for our next cohort. All right, my guest today is Asma Hassan, a PhD student in sociology and a national research trainee in interdisciplinary training, education, and research in food, energy, water systems at Colorado State University. That is a mouthful of a title. Asmal just published an essay last week about water woes in his native Bangladesh, and we talk about growing up in a farming family there, the ongoing water and food security crisis in the region, and how he sees the differences in the environmental justice movement between the U.S. and Bangladesh. Enjoy. All right, now I'm super happy to be joined by Asmal Hassan. Asmal, how are you doing today? I'm great, Brian. Thank you so much uh, for having me here. And I'm glad to be part of this great podcast. Excellent. Well, thanks for being here. And where are you today? Where are you talking to us from? I am right now talking from Fort Collins, Colorado. Um, I just spent two months in Grand Junction, Colorado for my summer internship. I just returned back last week uh, from Grand Junction to Fort Collins. Excellent. And how are how are things there? I know the country's crazy right now with air quality and fires and heat. How are things in Fort Collins? Uh, the air quality uh, is, I think, uh, one of the main concerns in Fort Collins because uh, Fort Collins is surrounded by regions where there are a lot of fracking industries, like unconventional oil and gas development industries. And... Uh, uh, the air is uh, uh, being contaminated uh, by the chemicals used in the fracking industries. Uh, and uh, other thing is look is looking good in Fort Collins. Gotcha. I was out there a few years ago for a conference, and it was a really fun town to be in. I remember really, really liking it. So you weren't always in Colorado. You were born and raised in Bangladesh, and I want to hear about that. Can you tell me a little bit about your your upbringing, and where along the way you became interested in environmental health and justice and some of the things that you've gone on to research and study since. Thank you so much, Brian, for asking this question. Yeah, I, I was born in uh, born and raised in Bangladesh, uh, which is a small country with high population density. Uh, you can uh, imagine how population density is there. It's a small country with 55,000 square miles in size. But the total population is uh, 170 million. And the fact is that most of the population are heavily dependent on natural resource for their survival and livelihood, especially agricultural food production. Say, for example, 70% 
of the country's population uh, are dependent on agricultural food production. And uh, among them, 90% produce rice, which is uh, one of the water-intensive crops. And uh, the problem is that uh, Bangladesh belongs to the world's largest delta. We called it is the Ganges, Brahmaputra, and Meghna Delta. And uh, Bangladesh belongs to the downstream of the delta. And more than 91% of the country's water are coming from outside of the country through the major transboundary rivers like the Ganges, the Brahmaputra, and Meghna. And uh, that means uh, the country is heavily dependent on natural, uh, on water resource uh, uh, coming from outside, like from neighboring countries. The major transboundary rivers are originated in the Himalayan glaciers and they pass, pass through neighboring countries like India, China, and then fall in the Bay of Bengal uh, through Bangladesh. So uh, availability of water in Bangladesh is heavily connected with the water governance and management in neighboring countries. And, uh, you know, India and China are the big brothers in that region. And uh, they have a huge uh, dominance in, the, in, in controlling water flows in the transboundary rivers. That means uh, regional political economy and, uh, um, and obviously climate change uh, are affecting the water resource availability in Bangladesh. And uh, from my own life experience, I found that I'm from a, a, a small farming family. My dad was a, a farmer. And I have been observing uh, in my childhood and throughout my life that he's, he, he has been struggling in producing uh, rice uh, because rice is our main staple food. And the problem is that as the neighboring countries are controlling water in the transboundary rivers, uh, water has become a double-edged sword for us in terms of agricultural fruit production. During monsoon season, when we have huge rainfall and precipitation, we don't need extra water, but uh, the neighboring countries, they open the uh, barrages and dams in their uh, territories to let the water flow in the downstream country in Bangladesh. So consequently, every year, uh, Bangladesh uh, faces uh, huge floods. Say, for example, in last year, Bangladesh uh, uh, had five major devastating floods which has a huge uh, negative consequences for agricultural food production, for infrastructure, and also for uh, public health. And uh, during winter season, when we do, don't have water in the river, and we need water, and uh, the neighboring country, India and China, they close the barrages and stop the water flow in the transboundary river. As consequently, we are suffering from lack of water, which has also negative consequences for uh, rice production. As I mentioned, that rice is one of the uh, water-intensive uh, crops. So given these life experiences, uh, uh, I have been uh, uh, confronting with an academic questions from the very beginning of my academic life, like how do social systems exceed their e ecological carrying capacities? And I found that uh, studying sociology, I found that... Uh, Environmental problems like water crisis or water scarcity are not, are not necessarily coming from the lack of natural resources. They are coming from the unequal distribution of natural resources by different stakeholders, by different countries. And uh, 
this is the point uh, uh, from where I got interest in environmental health, environmental justice. You can say like it is my life story. Yeah, for sure. And and and, and so looking at this water problem, and you mentioned this a little bit, especially talking about um, kind of water releases from India and China. But so your work has looked at how environmental problems are linked to social systems, right? And so how does that, can you walk us through a little bit how that manifests in Bangladesh? Some, some examples of that building on what you, what you mentioned with the, the water releases or, or not allocating enough water uh, for Bangladesh. Yeah, definitely. I think uh, as I have a training in sociology, I always try to connect uh, social systems with the environmental problems. And uh, I, I really believe that there is a strong connections between uh, environmental problems and social systems. So, for example, if we look at the history of Bangladesh, uh, uh, the country got independence in 1971. And after independence, uh, uh, the country adopted uh, like uh, Western model of development. Uh, if we look at the economic aspects of the development uh, in the agricultural food production, the country adopted uh, the green revolution uh, model of uh, agricultural food production, which uh, promotes uh, monoculture, which promotes the use of uh, pesticide, agricultural chemicals, and uh, other uh, uh, and and fertilizers, uh, which has a negative consequences uh, uh, for the public health. Uh, definitely, we, we ensured food security through the green revolution but it brought negative consequences for public health and also uh, other environmental qualities in that region. So for example, I can show you an example that recently a National Cancer Research Institute and Hospitals in Bangladesh, they published a report called Cancer Registry Report uh, from 2015 to 2017. And they found that uh, one third of the patients uh, they are treating in their hospitals are uh, farmers. And the alarming situation there is that uh, uh, the rate of cancer uh, among the farmers are, is, is gradually increasing. Uh, say, for example, in 2015, over 30% of the cancer patients were farmers. In 2016, it is 33%. And 2017, it is 34%. And along with this alarming rate, uh, it uh, has uh, uh, it has uh, huge consequences on the farmers in terms of treatment of cancer, because uh, it it is a huge financial burden on them, and also use of uh, fertilizers, chemicals, and other uh, ingredients in the uh, agricultural field has also negative consequences for water quality, air quality. Of, the, of that region. So uh, the Green Revolution pro- pro- program has focused on food security, not on environmental quality, not on uh, like food justice or sovereignty. And uh, if you look also in the political structure after independence uh, in 1971, Bangladesh has been struggling uh, in establishing the democratic institutions. And in social science, we call that in South Asia, especially in India, Bangladesh, and Pakistan, uh, we call uh, the political system as ecocratic governments, uh, which refers that natural resources are controlled uh, 
by the political elites. So there is a huge gap between the political powerful people and political powerless people in getting uh, natural resources. I'm curious, just wondering, so when you came here, you kind of had a firm understanding that the environment and justice were things that were uh, uh, important to you and things you wanted to study. What was it like coming to the U.S. and studying these things? What was it like to leave Bangladesh and what was that experience like for you? Uh, personally, um, I, I feel that uh, if you look at the history of uh, environmental justice movement, it has been originated in the U.S. in 1970s. And when I came in the United States, uh, I found that uh, obviously there are uh, serious problems in the country in terms of uh, environmental justice, that uh, people of color or marginalized people are the main targets of uh, uh, chemicals and environmental waste dumping. Uh, but I also really felt that uh, there is a strong environmental justice movement in the United States as compared to Bangladesh. Uh, the reason behind is that I think uh, uh, the uh, democratic governance system in the United States, which has allowed, which has been allowed uh, the environmental justice activists, academicians, researchers in doing research. Uh, in environmental justice and making awareness among the different uh, segments of the society. But but Bangladesh, uh, I think, uh, since it's still a uh, underdeveloped countries and uh, the country is suffering from lack of democratic practices, there is a little space or uh, lack of space in doing research and uh, doing environmental activism in Bangladesh and also making awareness among the mass people. So this is the difference I found that uh, uh, between Bangladesh and, and the United States. You've mentioned uh, Bangladesh's history of fighting for social, economic and political justice and how it makes it well suited to be a leader among the least developed nations in the climate justice movement. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, thank you so much for the question, and I really appreciate. Uh, uh, yeah, if you look at the history of uh, Bangladesh, especially uh, when it got independence in 1971, and if we look at the uh, Declaration of Independence, uh, there are three main principles of the Declaration of Independence, which is uh, equity, human dignity, and social justice. But unfortunately, uh, we could not ensure these principles after independence. But I, I always feel that if we look back in the history of Bangladesh uh, uh, under British colonialism, then under uh, uh, in, in Pakistan regime, we, we found that uh, we have a great history uh, in fighting against social, economic and political injustice. Especially, I, I, I can concentrate here... Uh, when Bangladesh, when Indian subcontinent got independence from British colonialism, the whole Indian subcontinent was divided on the basis of two nations theory, like uh, Hindus uh, for India and Muslims for Pakistan. And Bangladesh was part of Pakistan as uh, the region of uh, current Bangladesh was uh, predominantly Muslim uh, dominant uh, region. But the problem is that uh, Pakistan had two parts. One is West Pakistan and one is East Pakistan. And they are geographically separated from each other. Uh, 
uh, only one component uh, was considered to bind them together was religion. But uh, uh, it, di it did not work. Uh, when we got, uh, uh, when Pakistan got independence in 1947, then the conflict between these two regions has already been started. And the first conflict came in, in, into existence uh, in terms of uh, language. Like uh, among the whole Pakistan, 56% of the population were speaking in Bengali. And only 11% of uh, the whole Pakistan's population were speaking in Urdu. But the political leaders who are from West Pakistan, they were trying to impose Urdu as, as the state and national language of uh, Pakistan, of the whole Pakistan. But the people in Bangladesh who are a majority in terms of uh, number of population, they protested uh, these decisions. And uh, um, in a rally organized by the mass people, especially led by students, uh, pol Pakistani police uh, shoot shot uh, the rally and uh, uh, we lost a couple of students from the University of Dhaka. Uh, and this is the one example in uh, world history that uh, a nation can sacrifice their lives uh, for uh, in protecting their own language, native language. And uh, we got independence in 1971 and the, through a massive liberation war, which was nine months in length. And we lost almost 3 million people uh, during this uh, uh, liberation war in 1971 and 200,000 women were raped during this uh, liberation war. But uh, uh, the liberation war, war was organized uh, uh, by the students, by the farmers, by the laborers, uh, by the mass people. And we achieved the independence in 1971 against the oppression and exploitation by the West Pakistani rulers. And this has also been uh, the history against uh, British colonialism. If you look at the resistance movement against the British colonialism, most of the resistance movements were uh, happened in the current Bangladesh regions by the farmers, by the students, by the indigenous communities, and also uh, by the uh, laborers uh, working in the indus industries. So historically, we have a, a, a legacy of uh, fight against uh, social, economic, and political injustice. And definitely from uh, my sociological point of view, climate change is not only an environmental problem. It's a social and environmental justice issue. If we look at the rate of carbon emissions, most of the carbon are emitted by the industrialized and developed countries. Uh, but uh, the problem is that uh, poor countries like Bangladesh are the main sufferers. So uh, from the historical legacy of fight against uh, social, economic, and political justice, I think uh, Bangladesh has been playing a great role in, uh, in the climate justice movement around the world. And uh, uh, Bangladesh has been leading in different international forums uh, uh, in getting... Uh, compensations from the uh, Western uh, industrialized developed countries, like uh, I think uh, uh, Climate Green Fund, uh, uh, Bangladesh has been leading in, in organizing this fund and distributing the allocations among the least developed countries. 
So I've been asking everybody on the podcast, what is a defining moment that shaped your identity up to this point? Uh, it could be a moment, an event, um, something that something that stands out to you. That's a great question, Brian. And uh, as I mentioned that uh, uh, climate justice or environmental justice or even social justice is, is my life experience. But the defining moment, I decided to be an academician, a researcher, or an activist for climate justice or environmental justice is my fieldwork during my master's thesis uh, that I conducted in the coastal uh, region of uh, Bangladesh. Um, I was examining how climate change are affecting the forest-based coastal communities uh, living in the southwestern regions. And uh, I realized this uh, personally when I was in the field. Uh, I found that uh, the coastal communities, they are totally dependent on the natural resources of the forest. We call it the Shundarban, which is the largest mangrove uh, forest in the world because uh, they don't have any agricultural land. Uh, especially the indigenous communities living in the coastal regions. They don't have any agricultural land because there is an unequal distribution of land uh, ownership in that region. Uh, only a small portion of the uh, population who are rich, they have the land ownership. Most of the people, they don't have any land ownership. So they are fully dependent on the natural resources of the forest. But after the cyclone Cedar in 2007 and cyclone Isla in 2009, uh, the government imposed restriction on the forest-based communities to enter to the forest uh, because uh, the objective of the restriction is that uh, uh, if people or indigenous communities enter to the forest, they will uh, harm the natural ecosystem of the forest which was uh, almost destroyed by the uh, cyclones. But the problem is that if they don't have any access to the forest, they don't have any livelihood mechanism because they collect uh, honey, they collect wood, they, they collect fish from the forest to survive and to make their livelihood. And the problem is that uh, due to climate change, uh, sea level rise is is a is one of the main problems in the coastal regions, and due to sea level rise, water salinity is also a a major problem in that region. And you can't produce rice or other agricultural produces in the saline water. So the landowners converted their lands uh, from agricultural uh, field to the shrimp production uh, field. They produce shrimp, uh, which is tolerant in the saline water. And uh, the people, when they lost uh, the access to the forest, they started to working as a labor, uh, daily labor in the shrimp field, which is uh, a devastating issue for their health. If you uh, uh, continuously work in the uh, saline water to produce shrimp, it has a negative consequences for your skin, for your other health uh, issues. So uh, this problem, like climate change and government's forest management policy, creates a barriers uh, for the uh, natural re resource dependent uh, coastal communities. 
And uh, another another issue I found that due to extreme water salinity, uh, they have lack of uh, source for drinking water, safe drinking water. I, I stayed there uh, a couple of days and uh, I realized that how difficult, how difficult it is to drink saline water. I, I could not drink saline water. I, I bought water bottle from the market to drink it. But I realized that since they are poor, uh, they have uh, less uh, financial capitals to purchase a uh, water bottle from the market. They have no other alternatives to drink uh, a saline water, which, which is a uh, huge uh, uh, health issues for them and also uh, life-threatening issues for their uh, survival. Yeah, and this is the point that... Uh, when you go to the field, you can realize the sufferings uh, and struggles people are uh, uh, doing the, in their day-to-day -day activities and the, for their survivals. And uh, my master's uh, uh, research uh, fieldwork uh, influenced me to become an environmental justice academician and researcher and also an activist. What a great story. I... I the 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 part of the inner intersection of the issues there where you're not only dealing with an economic imbalance but this environmental imbalance i think really speaks to the kind of work you've been doing that's looking at social systems as well as environmental ones and it brings me to another project that you're involved in that really caught my eye and i want to i want to pick your brain on it a little bit um, a project you're involved in called incarcerated agriculture horticulture and gardening um, which seems vastly different than a lot of what we've been talking about so far. I'm wondering if you could tell me about this project, your involvement, and what's the aim? Thank you so much, Brian, for raising the questions. And I think uh, uh, working in the prison agricultural lab uh, by Dr. Joshua Sbika, one of the uh, faculty members in the Department of Sociology, is one of my uh, great life experiences uh, in my graduate life. Uh, I have been involved in the project in the last couple of years, especially during summer, because I am an international student. So I could not work uh, more than 20 hours uh, due to my immigration status. So I, I have been working uh, in the project during summer as a research assistant. The main goal of the project uh, is uh, to examine how the agricultural food production in the U.S. Uh, prison systems uh, can uh, make a tools for the rehabilitation program for the incarcerated people. And you know that the uh, United States is a land of incarceration. Uh, 2.3 million people uh, in the United States are behind the bars. And uh, there are 5,000 prisons and jails, uh, 1,800 juvenile correctional facilities in the uh, United States. And if all the incarcerated people are housed in one place, uh, it would be the fourth largest city in the USA. So there are a lot of uh, issues connected with the prison systems in the United States, like uh, housing, feeding, clothing, and uh, governing of the incarcerated people. And uh, the project was uh, uh, established to examine uh, how the social ecological dimensions of the experiences uh, prisoners have with food and plants are contributing in their rehabilitation uh, program. 
and uh, this project was influenced by one of the famous court by nelson mandela uh, from south africa who was in prison for 27 years and uh, the quote is that a garden was one of the few things in prison that one could control to plant a seed watch it grow to tend it and then harvest it offered a simple but enduring satisfaction for the uh, uh, prisoners and the but the problem is that uh, there is not a comprehensive uh, uh, study on the prison agriculture in the united states and there is lack of knowledge and information on prison agriculture only one source uh, we can uh, refer here the us census of prisons uh, and in the last census in 2005 they had only one question uh, on the uh, about farming and agriculture in the prison so uh, the project was designed to develop a national database Uh, on the us uh, prison and jails uh, covering uh, how much prison and jails uh, have uh, like uh, agricultural food production system in their uh, in their territory and uh, we have been developing the national database and we found that uh, 602 state prisons in total in the usa have uh, food and agricultural activities Uh, among them we can uh, split them by the following way that 26 states have animal agriculture 25 states have crops 19 states have food production and every state has some form of horticulture so uh, this national database uh, uh, is using right now to conduct a primary uh data collection research we are using a mixed method approach uh, to collect primary data uh through semi structured survey and in depth interview uh and uh, to examine like how the agricultural food production is being organized in the us prison and jails and what are the implications uh, uh, from both uh, environmental ecological and incarcerated people's uh, economic and social uh, social rehabilitation uh, the agricultural food production can contribute can contribute and uh, it's a uh, huge experience uh, in my graduate life that uh, working in a project uh, uh, connecting agriculture and uh, prison system uh, i think uh, it will create new insights in the penal system in the united states in, in future i'm wondering if you guys have hypotheses is is it is it that healthy food is it just a being around plants maybe a sense of purpose and 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 good for the soul and and also maybe eating healthy foods or where does the kind of uh the the hypothesis lie and where this could be a, a net good for that's that's a good question although as i mentioned that although there is no comprehensive study but there are a couple of case studies uh, on on prison agricultural system in the united states and the research shows that uh, if the prison agriculture prison has a food production system by their own uh, it has a positive influence of the rehabilitation of the incarcerated people and you know uh, the food system in the us prison 
is highly corporatized and when your food system is uh, highly corporatized it has a lot of issue in terms of uh, food justice uh, uh, food sovereignty and nutrition of the incarcerated people so the case studies uh, are showing that uh, if uh, there is a sustainable agricultural food production system in the us prison it has a positive implications uh, for the overall environment for the overall ecology of the prison system and also uh, for the for a sustainable rehabilitation of the incarcerated people in the society when they get training uh, in food production in the prison when they are out of the prison uh, they can uh, organize their own livelihood uh, uh, through the training and to produce their own food by their own uh, and uh, it will help them uh, to to be rehabilitated sustainability uh, sustainably in in society so you might be the first environmental sociologist i've had on here i i, I shouldn't say that because i don't know that for a fact but i'm pretty sure so i'm curious you know you have uh international experience coming from bangladesh and now you're in the states i'm curious where are some of the areas of the field that you think could improve and how would you like to be a part of that change as you advance in your career yeah that that's a great question again uh, brian as i uh, mentioned earlier that uh, uh, as an environmental sociologist uh, i found uh, in the united states when i came in the united states there are a lot of opportunity to work uh, uh, in, in environmental justice field in the united states uh, for example i can mention about uh, agent of change in environmental justice uh, fellowship program which is a great uh, opportunity for the early career Uh, scientists and uh, uh, scholars uh, to practice environmental justice but uh, as i mentioned earlier that there is a huge lack of opportunity in the global south to be uh, environmental activist to do research on environmental justice and uh, making awareness uh, as i said that uh, i am from bangladesh who, where the country has been uh, shifting from a lower middle lower income country to middle income country and there are a lot of huge development activities are going on there but uh, there is a little chance uh, to assess the environmental consequences of the development activities so i think uh, uh, as a bangladeshi uh, in future uh, it would be a great opportunity for me to continue my research on in bangladesh and how the ongoing development activities uh, uh, are generating environmental injustice uh, in 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 the in this country so uh, i think that uh, uh, getting training from the academic and research setting in the united states will be a useful resource for me uh, to be an environmental justice scholar uh, uh, in global south uh, in future so you mentioned the agents of change program which is of course why we are here talking and it's obviously geared toward pushing scientists like yourself to communicate with a broader audience than they're used to and i'm curious why science communication isn't important to you and how do you see it fitting into your career moving forward thank you so much science communication is one of my favorite things and i'm glad that i'm part of uh, agent of change uh, fellowship program and uh, when i started my masters uh, in sociology at texas tech university 
I had the chance to work with uh, Catherine Heho. Uh, I don't know whether you know her uh, oh, or yeah. not. Uh, yeah, she is one of the leading climate scientists and climate change communicator. And uh, she just uh, joined the Nature Conservancy uh, at the Chief Scientist. And uh, I got a uh, uh, lot of training from her, how to communicate uh, like science, especially climate change science. And uh, one important thing I, I, I found from her is that uh, there is lack of communication. Uh, why the world is uh, polarized in terms of climate change. And uh, one uh, suggestion I always keep in mind from her that if you want to communicate uh, science with people, especially climate change, talk to them. Because uh, the Yale Climate Change Communication Program shows that people are concerned about climate change, uh, but when they are asked whether the climate change will affect them personally or individually, they, they say no. That means that uh, uh, people are not talking about uh, climate change. So uh, she one suggestion I always uh, kept in mind from her that uh, talk to the people about uh, science and identifying the commonalities uh, affected by the climate change is, is one of the main uh, tools uh, to communicate science. Say, for example, we have different uh, political perspectives. Someone is liberal, someone is conservative. But we all have health issues. And health issues are being affected by the climate change. We have our kids in home. They, their future is, is being affected by uh, climate change. So identifying the common issues affected by climate change is one of the main uh, like uh, successful tools uh, to uh, communicate about climate change and to make science communication a successful one. And it's worth pointing out that Catherine has been very open about her faith uh, and her science. So she's kind of notorious for people who don't know of being a Christian, I believe. She's, she's Christian, I believe. But, she, but, she's an evangelical Christian. And being very upfront about that. And she's, she's made it a point to speak to a lot of uh, evangelical Christian groups who, um, on the whole, are, are often more skeptical of so, uh, climate science. So she's, what a great person to learn from for you. She's, she's really been at the forefront of climate communication. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I was listening to one of her talk and uh, she, she mentioned that it is her faith that makes her a climate change scientist and climate change communicator because she was mentioning that as a human being, uh, we have responsibility to protect the earth because it is our uh, responsibility coming from the God uh, to protect the earth. So if you uh, are a believer, if you uh, believe in religion, then you have the responsibility to protect the earth and you have the responsibility also uh, to protect the most vulnerable people because uh, the most vulnerable people due to climate change or other any uh, problems, uh, they don't, they, they, they have little contribution in the climate change process, but they're the sufferers. So it is also a justice issue as, and as a, a believer, 
it is our responsibility to ensure justice. Well, Asmal, this has been such a fun conversation. I've learned so much about Bangladesh and your his, and your your path to where you're at now. And I have one final question, and that is, what is the last book that you read for fun? Ah, thank you. And uh, as I said, that uh, Catherine Heho is my, is one of my mentors, and I learned a lot of uh, things from her on climate change uh, communication. Uh, I started reading uh, her latest book uh, published uh, recently, and uh, the book's title is Saving Us, a Climate Scientist's Case for Hope and Healing in a Divided World. And uh, uh, as I mentioned in this book, she, she highlighted that, that there is a lack of communication uh, uh, in communicating uh, climate change. And... Uh, uh, in this book, uh, she is trying to give uh, people uh, different tools to have constructive conversation about why these issues are relevant to all of us and uh, how we can work together for change. And one important lesson I, I learned from this book, uh, she's trying to uh, show that we need to start with our heart, not by the head, because uh, we have been listening signs of climate change in the last uh, one and a half century when the science of climate change has been started. But still now our society is highly polarized and uh, uh, divided on the issues. So uh, we need to start with the heart in a sense that, as I mentioned earlier, that identifying the commonalities, identifying the common values, norms uh, that are affected by climate change would be a great step uh, uh, to make a uh, uh, a unique or homogeneous consensus uh, on the climate change in our society. So th- this is a great book, I think, uh, uh, to read, uh, to learn new tools and techniques on how to communicate climate change with the different stakeholders. Excellent. Well, what a positive note to end on. And Asmal, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me again. And I really appreciate uh, you, Brian. And also environmental health news and uh, also uh, agent of change uh, fellowship program. And uh, I feel honored uh, to be part of this great, uh, uh, great program. All right, that is all for this week, folks. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Asmal. If you haven't already done so, please read his essay, Weaponization of Water in South Asia. If you enjoy this podcast, be a part of it. Help us out. Visit agentsofchangeinej.org, that fancy new website I mentioned. And while you're there, click the donate button and support us. You can also find Agents of Change on Twitter and Instagram. And please follow us on Spotify, iTunes, or Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts, where you can listen to this and all past episodes. The Agents of Change podcast is written, recorded, and edited by me with outreach, scheduling, and support from the rest of the team. Ami Zoda, Yoshira Ornelas, Van Horn, Summer Ahmad, Gwen Raniger, Hannah Sio, and Aaron Gomez. Our team is growing. What a rock star team we have. We'd like to hear from you. Email us at agentsofchangeinej at gmail.com with suggestions for the show, questions for the fellows, reviews, or just to chat. And sign up for our monthly Agents of Change newsletter at the new program homepage, agentsofchangeinej.org. Thanks for joining us. We hope to keep these important conversations on diversity in science and health going. Join me next time when I speak with Dr. Pallavi Pant, 
an air pollution scientist and a staff scientist at Health Effects Institute. Have a great week, folks. Thank you.